the big business of SpaceX, and a tiny black hole. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. It's been a busy year for the private space company SpaceX, from launching and landing two NASA astronauts in its Crew Dragon capsule, to the deployment of hundreds of tiny satellites to blanket the globe with internet access. Now, SpaceX is pushing ahead with the development of its Starship spacecraft with ambitious plans to send humans to the moon and Mars. Michael Sheets is a reporter at CNBC, tracking news from the space beat and keeping a watchful eye on the private space sector. We'll speak with Sheets about the business of SpaceX and how the company's internet plans are fueling its Martian ambitions. Then, is it a bird, a plane, a tiny black hole, or a neutron star? One of these things was discovered by gravitational wave observations, and our panel of expert scientists from UCF are here to break down the latest findings in our universe. That's ahead, but first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. Scientists at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico say they're not sure when the observatory will be back up and running again. It was one of the largest operational radio telescopes in the world. Arecibo Observatory Director Francisco Cordova says they're still surveying the damage after a cable fell, damaging more than 250 panels on the dish last week. Director of the Florida Space Institute and UCF researcher Ray Lugo says repair estimates should be available soon, but he's not sure when the telescope will be fully functional again. And, and honestly, what we don't want to do is speculate um, what that time frame would be, because uh, we'll set an expectation within the community with that. With that. So, you know, our, we're trying to go about this in a very deliberate manner and share information when we have it and not speculate on, you know, things like time frame. Operations have been put on hold for at least the next two weeks. That includes a NASA planetary defense project on a potentially hazardous near-Earth asteroid. Team members continue to analyze data that was collected before the incident, with publications expected in the upcoming weeks. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org space. Reporting this week from my colleagues Danielle Pryor and Matthew Petty. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's been a very busy year for SpaceX. We've seen the successful launch of two NASA astronauts under NASA's commercial crew program, and SpaceX is full steam ahead, launching hundreds, then thousands, of tiny internet satellites into space. Earlier this month, the company was awarded a lucrative defense contract from the Pentagon. To dig into the business of SpaceX, we're joined by CNBC's space reporter Michael Sheets, Michael, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on, Brennan. It's great to be on. Well, the Pentagon uh, recently awarded SpaceX and ULA pretty big contracts to launch national security missions. Let's start there. Why is this a big deal for these companies? Well, I'd say for two specific reasons. First of all, the National Security Space Launch Program, this phase two, represents nearly three dozen launches. And those launches, if you break them out per year, are worth roughly about a billion dollars a year. So in just in terms of the significance of what this means uh, as a source of revenue, it's quite, quite significant for any company looking to win contracts uh, in the rocket marketplace. Uh, but additionally, because it's so many contracts over five years, uh, it's quite significant for the next half decade. 
And was this a 50-50 split between SpaceX and ULA, or uh, did it skew towards one company or the other when the Pentagon awarded these contracts? So the uh, the Pentagon decided to go with ULA getting 60% of the launches and SpaceX winning the remaining 40%. Uh, that might seem like a maybe unfair advantage or something like that, but Historically, um, uh, until SpaceX really started winning market share from ULA uh, in the middle of last decade, ULA's launched uh, and pretty much had a monopoly on national security launches. So you're talking about something that's now 60% to ULA and 40% to SpaceX, when in the last you know six years, it was 90% ULA and 10% SpaceX. So really, it's a pretty big jump up for SpaceX. So they're getting a much bigger piece of the pie. Um uh, as time goes on, Let, let's talk a little bit about the SpaceX awards. Um, which rocket um, will SpaceX be using for these uh, payloads? SpaceX will be using their Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets that they bid on this. One interesting piece in terms of the vehicles, SpaceX had bid to win some development funding for its Starship rocket, that next generation stainless steel rocket that people have seen in Texas, um, but they didn't win any of that award funding. Uh, and so this is mostly going to focus on SpaceX flying uh, payloads on the Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets. And the contract kind of stipulates that they have to integrate their payload a little bit differently than than they have in the past, right? Does that mean that SpaceX has to build a new facility to kind of explain the integration process of, of this contract? Yeah, that that's right. Be, because national security satellites and spacecraft can sometimes be more delicate or fragile than other commercial rockets, you can't just put the satellite on and then tilt it up uh, as SpaceX currently does, known as horizontal integration. And so they're actually planning to build a 284 foot tall, uh, quote unquote, mobile service tower. And that's going to be at Launchpad 39A at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. They are going to build that so that they can vertically integrate payloads onto their rockets, most specifically their Falcon Heavy rocket. Um, and that'll allow them to essentially just pick up the payload and put it directly on top of the rocket already standing right next to the launch pad there. Gotcha. Um, well, Michael Sheets, let's talk a little bit about uh, the ULA contract. Um, which rocket uh, did it put up for bid, and, and, and which rocket will be launching these payloads over the next five years? ULA bid its Vulcan rocket, which has been in development for the last few years, and that's replacing their Atlas V and Delta series of rockets. The Atlas V uh, series, I'll specifically note, uh, has been a target of Congress, especially when it comes to national security launches because they use Russian-built engines. So Vulcan's very important to ULA's future, as well as the future of national security launches, because it phases out the use of any rockets um, that are built and using, you know, majority U.S. parts. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, these are lucrative contracts. And, you know, I recall these contract awards uh, over the past drawing some some legal action. Um are we going to expect the same thing? I mean, two other companies were left out of this. Um, what's kind of the future of, of this awards? Is, is there some rumblings of some legal action happening? I haven't heard any significant reporting um, and, and haven't heard from any of my personal sources on whether or not someone's going to like definitively sue or contest uh, these contract awards. 
but historically, you're you're right. These these are very highly competitive contracts with billions of dollars on the line. Uh, and like I mentioned before, when SpaceX wanted to win some development funding uh, and was left out of its development funding a few years ago, they, they sued the Air Force for not winning that development award. Uh, as well as Blue Origin has also protested the criteria the Pentagon even used for soliciting these launch contracts. So this competition has historically seen quite a bit of legal action. Um, and it's pretty interesting from a perspective of the players that are involved, because you had two historically, you know, defense contractor focused companies and two privately funded ventures. Uh, the two first two being ULA and Northrop Grumman and the latter two being SpaceX and Blue Origin. Northrop Grumman not winning puts into doubt whether they're going to actually finish developing their Omega rocket, which they had proposed for these space contracts. Um, and for a Blue Origin, missing out on this uh, is a big miss in terms of a key revenue opportunity for the next five years or so. They're still going to develop their new Glenn rocket. Uh, and they will also get some share of these contracts through their BE-4 rocket engine, because that's the one that ULA's Vulcan rocket will be using to uh, moving forward. So it, you, we could see some contests, and it might be interesting to hear from SpaceX um, we didn't hear anything from SpaceX's leadership about what they thought of winning 40% of the contract uh, for the next five years or so. And the only thing we heard was then Elon Musk tweeting, uh, basically bashing United Launch Alliance, their competitor, saying because their rockets are no, not reusable, it will become obvious that, quote, ULA is a complete waste of taxpayer money, unquote. So that could be a little bit of foreshadowing for a possible contest from SpaceX. Mm -hmm. and, and you did some reporting on that. I'll, I'll go ahead and link it uh, on in the show notes here. Um, and, and just to clarify that that Northrop Grumman, the, the Omega rocket, that's that's the solid rocket that they're building and, and developing. Yes, that is right. You mentioned Starship. Um, so let's jump to SpaceX's ambitious project um, Starship. You, you mentioned uh, there was a recent test flight of some hardware at SpaceX's Boca Chica, Texas facility. This this was a really big step for Starship, wasn't it? It, it really was. And uh, nicknamed Serial Number 5 or SN5 uh, on August 4th, took that 500-foot flight. It was pretty similar, I will remark, to the Starhopper flight that happened last year. So same thing, just a quick short flight up about 500 feet in the air and then returning to land. But as far as development goes and them making progress on using larger and larger tanks. It's quite a bit of a step forward in their development, given that they had had now four prototypes uh, go out to the testing pad and fail before this. So that that's a big, big step in the right direction for them. And it's incredible just to see this. I mean, it, it's uh, kind of lovingly called the Pringles can uh, <laughs> fly <laughs> and, and hover and, and kind of precision land. It's, it's just an incredible sight. Um, I mean, what's ahead? What, what's the next test? I mean, that was pretty remarkable in itself. The next thing up is going to be more prototype testing. Uh, from reporting on the ground that we've seen, you see that their next one, serial number six, has already begun uh, being tested on the actual launch pad with uh, fueling tests. And they also have other further prototypes and tanks being built. I mean, this all comes after... Elon Musk emailed the entire SpaceX workforce on June 6th, I mean, and, and remarkably, about, about a week after the first time SpaceX ever launched any people on their separate Falcon 9 rocket with the Crew Dragon capsule. 
he emailed everybody saying we have to accelerate progress quote dramatically and immediately saying please consider the top spacex prototype apart from anything that could reduce dragon's return risk to be starship unquote so that was a really big shift for spacex where they're really going all in to the point where he's even offered the spacex private jet to move people to texas from their main hubs in california and florida if, if people are willing to relocate mm-hmm. let's take a step back then i mean obviously they're they're moving at this accelerated pace there's this rapid development but overall what is the plan for starship why is this being developed uh in, in kind of the fashion and the fever that it is the the overall plan for Starship is pretty straightforward as far as what their milestones look like. Uh, they're going to aim for these short shorter test flights that increasingly get up in altitude until they get to an orbital flight using both Starship and their super heavy booster that kind of looks like a just a huge, even larger Pringles can, if you will. They also want to get to being able to refly them, reuse the boosters as well as the Starship spacecraft. And then move into long duration orbital flights going beyond low Earth orbit. And then eventually they're still aiming for a lunar landing demonstration mission in 2022. Uh, The grand scheme of Starship is to be a system that can carry either uh, up to 100 people to the moon and Mars or massive amounts of cargo or satellites. Uh, So it's it's really this kind of next generation uh, air almost like an aircraft system that wants to be fully reusable, unlike their previous rockets, which are only partially reusable. Mm-hmm. And I mean, despite the kind of, you know, um, early stages of development that, that it's in, um, it has drawn the attention of agencies like NASA, right? I mean, NASA's awarded SpaceX a contract to develop the Starship to, as you alluded to, land on the moon. I mean, what does that show you about um you know, NASA's confidence in, in this system. It's been clear that NASA's confidence in Starship has been steadily increasing. I mean, them winning, albeit it was the smallest award and was probably based on what SpaceX bid compared to its competitors, but underneath the human landing systems program, the essentially the astronaut lunar landers that NASA's working on for their future moon missions, SpaceX won $135 million for Starship specifically, which is, is quite a big step in terms of uh, NASA going, you know what, I we do think you guys could actually pull this off. Now, I, and I, I want to highlight, especially, uh, this was a pretty remarkable statement to see this kind of attention, but uh, one of NASA's leadership, their associate administrator of their NASA science mission directorate, uh, was watching even the SN5 prototype flight. He, he screenshot it and then had this very optimistic, cheerful quote of, when the smoke cleared, there she stood majestically. So, it's pretty apparent that even the highest levels of NASA are watching Starship's development with uh, eagerness as well as very careful attention. Mm -hmm. And yet another uh, ambitious project by SpaceX is Starlink. This is its plan to blanket the globe with these tiny satellites to provide broadband internet coverage worldwide. Um, How does Starlink fit into the overall business plan of SpaceX to help kind of pay for some of these really, really ambitious projects that it's taking on. Well, and Brendan, I think you hit it right there on the head in terms of it being a really primary source of future revenue. Um, If you look at the launch business, uh, it's not a huge market. And 
while SpaceX has been able to improve their margins per launch by reusing some of their rockets and then reflying them, uh, reusing the boosters of the rockets, excuse me, as well as the nose cones of the rockets, that business is not a huge revenue business. I mean, even though a couple billion dollars a year does sound significant in, in context of the larger growing space industry, that's actually one of the more insignificant sources of revenue. Uh, whereas satellite communications and satellite broadband service, especially internet service into hard to reach areas is a significant source of potential revenue. Um, I'll say the one big caveat that that is that Starlink will need probably millions of users to be successful. But they told the FCC just the uh, just about a month ago that the early demand is coming through. They said that over uh, almost 700,000 people in the United States alone had expressed interest in the service. Obviously, those are not people paying a fee to sign up for the service yet. So that could very well change in the future. Um, but SpaceX investing hundreds of millions of dollars to this point in Starlink shows how much of uh, how important it is to their future revenue sources, especially if they want to do these really long term bets uh, with Starship and as well as just flying other people on, on their spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And you've got to imagine that, you know, this year in particular, we've learned just how um, incredibly important access to the Internet is. And, you know, this, you know, COVID-19 has kind of shown some inequality of Internet access uh, across the globe, right? You've got to think that that Starlink will kind of leverage that inequality and, and promise to fill that gap, right? Right. And I think that's spot on. And it's a very important point. I mean, Starlink is not if you are complaining about your Internet service in the middle of, you know, Nashville, Tennessee, Starlink's probably not going to fix that problem for you. Uh, but if you are in rural Wisconsin and you have terrible service and very few options, if any, um, then that that is exactly the target market that you know SpaceX is going for here. Uh, I, I forget the number directly off the top of my head uh, specifically, but there are still millions of Americans who have little or no access to high speed Internet. Uh, and even just even if they could pay for it and even if they could, you know, access it, they 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 couldn't get a high speed service. So that's that's really what Starlink's going for. Mm -hmm. And Starlink isn't the only player that wants to be in this game. Right. There are some there are some. Other companies that are hoping to jump on this uh, internet, uh, you know, the satellite internet service, right? Right, and and similar to uh, satellite internet races we've seen in the past, there's never was it, there's ne there's never only one player going for it. Um, e even with how capital intensive, I mean, we're, we're talking uh, billions of dollars of development just to even get a service online. Uh, but there are companies with similar ambitions. Up until March, the closest competitor was OneWeb, uh, but they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy earlier this year. Notably, they, they've gotten a big billion dollar uh, bailout that looks like it's going to be coming through from um, to a consortium made of uh, a Indian telecommunications company as well as the UK government. Though that consortium looks like they'll get that approved by bankruptcy court later this year. Um, but that that really sets back OneWeb's development timeline. The other big competitor is Amazon, uh, and Amazon's looking to develop a pretty similar system to Starlink, known as Project Kuiper. But the big big difference is they're about two years in development behind where Starlink is today. Kuiper has not launched any satellites. They're hiring 
quite a lot just to build up the team right now for Kuiper. So we have yet to see what that's going to look like. But Amazon has pledged they're going to put in $10 billion in developing their Kuiper network. So that's a big one to watch in the years to come. Mm -hmm. There is so much going on in the private space sector, which is glad we have reporters like you to stay on top of all of it. (laughs) Uh, We've been speaking with Michael Sheets. He's the space reporter at CNBC. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Still to come, is it a tiny black hole or a massive neutron star hanging out in our backyard? Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Gravitational wave observations uncovered an interesting finding in our cosmic backyard, and scientists are still trying to figure out exactly what it is. Here to talk about the latest discovery, and whether it poses a threat to us here on Earth, are UCF physicists Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Jim Cooney kicks off the conversation. Well, this is a neat discovery, right? So this is a, a, a gravitational wave discovery that indicates that we have a collision of Something pretty big, 20-something times the mass of the sun, that's definitely a black hole, and something that's about 2.6 times the mass of the sun, which that, we're not exactly sure what it is. It's either the biggest neutron star we've ever discovered, or the smallest black hole we've ever discovered. So it's a superlative either way. Which one is it? This is going to be really difficult to tell, but the trouble is, I know, you, you can't... You know, they're both just dense, compact objects. Uh, We only can tell the mass of the thing. We don't really have any other details than that. And we're unfortunately not going to be able to get very many other details. Uh, It's tough to say. We we have a theoretical upper limit on the size of neutron stars. And we think that's about two and a half times the mass of the sun. This thing would be slightly larger than that, but probably fall within the, uh, you know, our, our our, the uncertainties, our lack of knowledge. Yeah, our uncertainties. And the reason we have these uncertainties is that we don't really understand how neutron stars work. I mean, neutron stars are not something you can build in a laboratory and test. And so a lot of our understanding of what happens like inside of a neutron star is based on our theoretical models. And, you know, are we ever sure that our theoretical models are right? No, not until we test them. And that's hard to do. So uh, we're not sure if we're correct about that. But there's also an issue with black holes. I mean, we think we have never seen a black hole anywhere near this small. We've never seen a black hole smaller than about five times the mass of the sun. And there's some reason to believe they may not, you know, exist in that range from two and a half to five times the mass of the sun. So seeing this object is exciting. It's odd. It means we're wrong about something, which is not uncommon. Yes, that's what we love. Let's take a step back. Um, how did scientists make this observation in the first place? So this is this is yet another discovery from uh, our gravitational wave observatories. So the uh, LIGO gravitational wave observatory, which is repetitive, and the Virgo, which is the the new system in the in, in Europe <laughs> as well. So ever since 2015, we've been or 2017 recently, uh, we've been seeing these uh, collisions of big things using gravitational wave detection. Uh, originally, it was just a uh, big black holes colliding together. Uh, we also somewhat recently saw a couple of neutron stars colliding together. 
this is actually the first time we've seen this kind of mixed matched pair, whereas a, a black hole and maybe something else, which is kind of cool. And very small things. Yes, this is, a, you know, this, this, was, this, this observation was unique in a, in a bunch of senses. Almost always the things that collide are similar in size, right? So two neutron stars colliding are very similar. Two big black holes colliding similar. This is a 20-something mass of the sun thing colliding with a two-point something mass of the sun thingy. And that's, that's, that's crazy to see that. And it makes for a complicated discovery because it's like, yeah, it is like, like Pac-Man eating a little thing or something like that. It's, it's, it's a, it it all happens in one fell swoop. And instead of the big violent event, uh, it can be a very quick event, but, um, but we saw it nonetheless. And, and the, uh, the, the signal was very clear and fairly unambiguous. And so we're pretty darn confident of the masses of these things, which, uh, makes it very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, or as Jim mentioned, you know, scientists have only been making these gravitational wave observations for what, some three or five years at this point, and, and they're still developing the technology. You know, what does the outlook look like for making these kind of observations? Will, will, the, will the sensors get, you know, uh, be able to detect, you know, smaller and smaller things? Like, what, what's the trajectory of discovery here? I think one of the big improvements that I would anticipate is that as you get more gravitational observatories uh, around the planet, that will improve the ability to determine where the particular gravitational wave was originating from. Um, already, the, the sensitivity that they have to achieve to see these things at all is is amazing. Um, but uh, I think in this particular discovery, by uh, uh, having detectors in Europe and the United States, uh, it, it helps you localize, figure out where things are coming from. You have multiple signals, just having multiple things detecting something improves your um, confidence in what's the masses of the things that you're measuring. So will we ever get to a point where we'll know what this is, or are you just going to leave me guessing forever? <laughs> yeah, for this one, you might be in trouble because... <laughs> You know, this event happened. This was a merger. You know, this is a co- the collision of this big black hole and this small object. It happened. It's done. Uh, this the small object was eaten by the big black hole, and so now, or, or the, the two merged into a somewhat bigger black hole. Uh, we did not see any, you know, light coming from this. So it, nothing, no electromagnetic radiation was detected coming from this uh, merger, which means that we pretty much have all the information we're ever going to have for this particular object. Uh, now we, we do anticipate, like if it is, for example, a, a, a black hole, uh, a, the smallest black hole ever, we would anticipate maybe there are more black holes of that size, and so we'll see more events like this. And, and as Josh said, uh, the the more of these observatories we add, and the more sensitive they get, the more of these kinds of collisions we'll see. Uh, we may get to learn more about this kind of event if one happens a little closer. This one, this particular one, happened. Uh, very far away. Um, and so the closer they are, obviously, the, the stronger the signal is. And so we may learn more about these kinds of things. This particular one, it's just going to have to haunt your nightmares, Brennan. That was UCF scientist and host of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast Walk About the Galaxy wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. You can also interact with the show on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet? Podcast on Facebook. And on Twitter, we've got a new handle. We're at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet? Space. Get it? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. 
Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty, and our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 